0: Welcome to ITRUS, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, Texarkana, Texas. Fellowship Bible Church exists to help believers and seekers become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Following is a message delivered by Andy Tuttleby, our student pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church. We trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, which, Andy, it seems like a number of years ago for me, I've getting longer and longer, but there was a long time ago when I was probably about 15 um, and I was on my way back from a mission experience that I'd had with my older brother and a couple of his friends, who kind of annoyed me to be honest with you, we're, we're, you know, full disclosure, and we were taking a train back from where we'd been doing our mission work to either going to the next place or else we were going home, one of the two. Um, the reason his friends bothered me or annoyed me is they were too, well, for lack of a better word, they were too spiritual. Or at least I felt like they were trying hard to be spiritual. Um, and I'll give you an example why I thought that. We're on the train. I'm tired. I just want to close my eyes and take a nap. My brother and his friends decide this would be a great opportunity to memorize a passage of Scripture together. Out loud with other people in the train car with us. And I'm like, no. Like, gag me. That's like the last thing I want to do. And so I basically folded my arms, got myself in a little bit of a huff, closed my eyes, leaned my head back, and said, you guys can carry on without me, but count me out. Well, they insisted on carrying on anyway. I say out loud. And so they decided to memorize 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter, okay? You know, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And off they went. And I can sleep through anything. Right? Even today, but back then even more so. A teenager, sleep is what we do best, right? Um, I can sleep through anything. That was not going to keep me awake. I could not sleep. But it wasn't because of them. Now don't get me wrong. They were loud. They were, they were reciting verses out loud in the cards. One of them would read it and then the other two would try to say it. And then the other one would pass the Bible and the other one would try to say it. So the three of them were going back and forth one after the other. But what kept me awake was not that they were loud. It's that they were not good at it. They kept messing up. Now I was determined I was not doing this, right? So I kept my eyes closed, arms folded, head back. But after a little while, I couldn't stand it. And so without even opening my eyes, because I'm not going to give them the satisfaction, I would just prattle off the first two verses. Like, would you guys get it right? It's this. Off I go, keep my eyes closed, not even blink, nothing. Carry on. And they would carry on again. They tried to get through verse 3, and they're like messing up all over the place. They're missing words. They're saying the wrong thing. They're getting them backwards. I'm like, guys, come on, it's not that difficult, and I would prattle it off. By the end of the train ride, I'd memorized the whole of 1 Corinthians 13. And if I say so myself, I did it without opening my eyes, without ever looking at the passage, and I did it effortlessly, which really annoyed them, which I quite enjoyed. Um, Since then, obviously looking back, um we should probably have added a line or two to the passage. I could have very easily added, even if I can memorize scripture better than you can, but have not love. I'm just a grumpy troll. Which is pretty much how I felt at the time. Um I've grown up a little since then. Just just not much. Just just a little. Okay, but that passage has become far more meaningful than it was at the time that I was trying to use it just to embarrass my brother and his friends. Um, it's probably one of the most well-known passages of Scripture. Um, as I said, it was called the love chapter. But what has struck me the last few weeks is the context with which it all fits. We have been discussing spiritual gifts on Sunday night with the youth group, and I've kind of alluded to, and we've talked, 1 well, Corinthians 13 was one of the passages that we've discussed as we've done this um, and gone through this. But the fascinating thing is between chapters 12 and chapter 14, chapter 13 falls. Chapter 12, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. In chapter 14, Paul talks about spiritual gifts. And in chapter 13, Paul talks about love. The love chapter, chapter 13, in many ways is the meat in between a spiritual gift sandwich. So I'm going to use some some analogies. I've got like you've, you've got if you got the bullets, and you can see at the back that there's like three kind of areas. And I'm kind of using the whole idea of communication and language. So the first one I've entitled "If I Speak." And so I'll just read it first of all. If you read verse one through three of First Corinthians 13, "If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love," I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give, my, give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The gift doesn't matter. The spiritual gift doesn't matter when love is missing I say I've always thought this love chapter kind of stands alone which it does don't get me wrong it's one of the best explanations um, and instructions that we have on what love looks like both from God's perspective to us but also what he requires from us but it's written in between this context of the spiritual gifts and he starts off the passage listing off spiritual gifts If you have this gift, but you don't have love, you're just noise. If you use this gift brilliantly, but you don't have love, it's worth nothing to you. It gains nothing for you. gives nothing to somebody else. The gift doesn't matter when love is missing. Paul is contending that love is critical to any understanding or application of the spiritual gifts. When love is absent, any spiritual giftedness fails in its objective. In chapters 12, 1 through 11, this is where we're going to start looking here. Paul starts a rather lengthy discussion on the gifts. And we're not going to delve down super deep, but we're going to hit some of the highlights here. Um, and we're going to skim through some of this stuff. The first three verses are critical, though, to him setting the groundwork for understanding the rest of the chapter. And he starts off, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about the spiritual gifts. And then he starts off and he reminds them of where they came from, their life before Christ. He says in verse 2, he says, you know that when you were pagans, this is chapter 12, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray by mute idols. Keyword word there being mute. Why would he use the word mute when referring to idols that they once worshipped and followed? He says, somehow you were led astray by inanimate objects that couldn't speak. Speech is power. The universe was created by the speech of Almighty God who they now serve, the Corinthians, and now following that God. And He's painting a contrast. Your idols were mute. Your current God, He speaks. And it comes with power and with authority. Jesus' words led people to salvation. Jesus said that man shall not live on bread alone. And speech is more than just words. Actions speak louder than words. Actions also communicate. Paul is reminding them that they once followed idols that couldn't speak, had nothing to say anyway, and they couldn't save. He says there are passages in the Old Testament where God essentially mocks the gods or the idols of foreign nations, of pagan nations, because they require... They're worshippers to save them when there's fire or a flood. And it, 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 there's one particular psalm where he, it's, it's scathing. Where God is mocking them literally having to grab their idol from their home and rush out because a flood is on its way or a fire has started or something like that. It's like your gods need you to save them. And Paul is saying, you serve a God who saved you. But he's not just pointing out their former God's shortcoming. he's contrast, shortcomings. He's contrasting their former way of life with the God that they now serve. A God who was not fashioned or created, but instead creates by the power of his words. A God who is not only alive, but gives life. A God who is not only speaks, but speaks with power and authority. Jesus is described by John as the Word. And this God has something to say to the world. Something to say that will save. Jesus holds the words of eternal life, I think is what His disciples said one time. God used to at one time commission prophets of old to come and speak for Him, but now He has chosen to speak or communicate through us, His church. And He has entrusted these words and that communication to those of us who follow Him To those who have believed his message and have been changed by it, the church at Corinth was a mess. Right? You you read through the book of Corinthians, first and second, and Paul is pointing out you need to fix this, you need to deal with this, and how did you get here? Like fix it. All right. There's a lot of instruction and commands and trying to corral things and stop doing this, start doing this. It was they had issues. Just read chapter 14 and see all some of the issues that they have with just a couple of the gifts and how they misused them. But Paul sets it up at the beginning of the whole passage in verse 4 through 7. He kind of breaks it down a little bit. He starts explaining to them what the gifts are, how to use them, and and how it all fits in. So he starts off in verse 4 through 6 and he says, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God who is at work. He mentions in each of those three verses, he mentions one member of the Trinity. Why does he do that? I think again, it's this whole contrast between your mute idols and a God now who you can't even wrap your head around. A God who is worthy of your service and your, and your praise and your worship. Before he even really gets into talking about the gifts of the spirit, he's reminding them who the spirit is. He's reminding them of the awesomeness of their God. And it's in stark contrast between that and what they once used to follow the impotent idols that they once chose as alternatives. And it's this same God who is the source of the power behind the spiritual gifts that he's trying to correct them on. Tony Evans, Tony Evans describes the spiritual gift this way. A spiritual gift is a God-given and empowered ability to serve Him in ways that benefit others. Okay? Um, now, there's a whole lot about spiritual gifts we're not even going to begin to get into. There's a, there's a lot, number of passages in Scripture that talk about it, and there's a lot of issues around it. I just want to kind of give an overall overview to some extent. But he talks about in verse 4 through 6, he says there are different types of gifts. There are different types of service. And there are different kinds of working. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God who is at work. Gifts, service, working. This is one of those instances where I think Paul is basically using different words to say the same thing, but also provide a little bit of further explanation along the way. Gifts gifts alone give us this idea of us receiving something cool, right? A toy, ooh, something to play with. But then he puts it in context. Service. Service is just another word for gifts in many ways. In the context of what he's talking about, it's like, oh, okay, now it's a gift that I get to use to benefit others. And then he uses the word work. The gifts of the Spirit are work. Um, I've been. Here at Fellowship for about 15 years, and there was um a parent who had kids in my youth ministry a number of years ago. They're not here anymore. Um, and he used to tell me that he used to tell his kids on a Sunday night when they were getting ready to go out to youth group. He said, Look, youth group is for you. You are going to benefit, you are going to learn, you are gonna hopefully gonna go there and you're gonna grow, you're gonna go get to fellowship with some of your fellow Christian friends. Um, the connections, you're going to enjoy yourself, have a bit of fun with some of the games and all the rest of that, but you're going to go, but your main objective, the thing I want you to be focused on when you go is that you're going to work. And they were like, what? No, we don't work, Dad. We play. It's all fun and games. And he's like, no, it's not all fun and games. He says, you girls are believers. You love the Lord. You've grown up in a home that has raised you in such a way as to know and love the Lord. And you're going to a youth group where there are some kids there who either number one, do not know the Lord at all. Others that do, but are really struggling. And others that just need to grow. Need, they need your input to help them along the way. He said, it's not just Andy's job to teach, to motivate, to, to mold, to point, to nudge. This is, you're there to help him. And the youth group will tell you, I say this to them all the time. There's limitations to what I can do as a youth pastor because I can't connect with every kid. I don't connect with every kid. Some kids, we just get along like that. Other kids, it's just like chalk and cheese. And it's hard work. But there's kids who can get along with that kid that I'm chalk and cheese with. They're chalk and chalk. Or cheese and cheese. I don't know how that works. But they get along with it. it, it, It fits. It makes sense, right? And so when they learn from me, they can take from me what they can then give to somebody else and it's the same in in the church as a whole he says, you're going there to work and yes all of the other stuff too but i want you to have this mindset that you're going there to serve you're going there to work for the lord and to help encourage and nudge other kids along the way in their faith the gifts are not just toys for our entertainment or amusement although the church at Corinth needed to be reminded of this in fact, in verse 7, he spells it out clearly for her, for us. He says, the gifts are the manifestation or the expression of the Holy Spirit in us. This God that is alive, the God who speaks, that is living inside of us, the gifts are the manifestation of that Spirit outwards. And they're for the common good. They're for those in the church, those around you, to edify, to build up, to grow, to nudge towards the King. I say specifically, he's speaking to and about the church here. That's not to say that the outside community doesn't benefit from the use of our gifts that God has given us and given his people, but generally speaking, the design is for edification and building up of the church to draw us to God and to equip us for his mission to the world. He goes on in verse 8 through 11, and I'll just read it quickly here, to casually mention just a few of the gifts, and I've got a little graphic that you guys can look at while I'm reading this. Um, go ahead for that next one there, Bob. Where are we at? Here we come. See how this comes out. Okay, I wasn't sure how it would with the back, black background, but you can see it pretty well. Okay, so he goes on and he just highlights just a few of the gifts. This is not an exhaustive list. There's about 22 spiritual gifts, depending on who you talk to. Maybe as many as 26. Some even suggest that Paul has never actually really given a complete exhaustive list. Um, okay, but here's a, here's a bunch of them up there on the screen there. But he's, he says in verse 8, he says, To one... There is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing. Same Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits or discernment. To another, speaking in different kind of tongues and to another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these All these are the work, again the work word, of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to whom He determines and who He wants to have them. God has this grand plan for how the gifts are supposed to operate. And they don't operate alone, they operate in unison. They operate in conjunction with one another. And God has gifted us, He has distributed them amongst us so that we can use them together to further His kingdom and to bring Him glory. I said, I told you at the beginning we're going to use this whole idea of kind of communication or language throughout all of this. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about body language. Paul uses this analogy, and I'm not going to go into too much detail on this. You guys, I'm sure, are quite familiar with this, these passages. But Paul uses the analogy of the body to describe the church within, with regards to conjunction of its use of the gifts. So what is our body language the language of our body, the church, communicating. I love watching crime shows, and especially these ones where they use these kind of interrogation techniques to figure out either who's lying or who's guilty. Right? Um, I'm kind of on a bit of a criminal mind's kick right now. And so there's all the psychoanalyst stuff behind all of that, and I love hearing them talk about all of this, that, and the other, and what this means and that means and whatever else. But there was a great show way back called Lie to Me. I don't know if you guys have seen this. Um, and there was this guy who had come up with this, he had studied facial expressions and body language um, to the point where he had mastered the art of being able to tell whether someone was telling the truth or not. And so he figured if I can ask the right questions in a certain scenario or situation or circumstance, I can get to the truth because I can tell by their shifting and their body language whether they're getting defensive, whether they've got disgust on their face, whether they're looking in the right or wrong direction when they're telling me something. I can tell whether it's a lie or whether it's true. And so we can start filtering out what parts are true and what parts are not and then kind of get to the, the root of what's really going on. Hopefully catch the killer, the criminal or whatever else or help the victim or whatever it is that the scenario was going ongoing. Okay? Loved it. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Well, Paul is trying to make sure that the church at Corinth had the right body language, that their body language matched up with what they were supposed to be doing with God's initial intent for the gifts of the Spirit. He wants to make sure that they coincide. At the moment, what was intended for the spiritual gifts and the way the church at Corinth was using them did not match up like when a criminal is sitting there and he's telling you something and he's lying and he seems really truthful but his eyes are looking in the wrong direction. So instead of recalling a factual event which would be, I don't know which one it is, like down and to the left or whatever else, he looked up and to the right which means he's using his imagination to kind of basically manufacture something. The body language of the church at Corinth did not match up with God's intended use of the gifts. They got it all wrong. And Paul was frustrated with them, but he's also gentle and kind as he corrected them. The analogy is well known, and it goes like this. The church is the body of Christ. One body, many diverse parts. The many parts, when working as they should, function together for the good of the whole. In Corinth, as I said though, and honestly, at fellowship, we're not as messed up as Corinth was, but we haven't got it all down either, right? Um, We're not immune to these issues. Paul challenges two things. He challenges their arrogance and he challenges their insecurity within the church with regards to how they use the gifts. I call it the they don't need me excuse and the I don't need them syndrome. Okay, so the they don't need me. Verses 15 through 20 of chapter 12. He says, now if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not stop for that reason being part of the body. And if the ear should say, "Because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body," if we would that for that reason would not stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But if in fact God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them just as He wanted them to be, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. I think we there's many of us who have this mentality of they don't need me. I don't really have anything to offer. I think a lot of it kind of stems to some degree of just feeling inadequate about using our gifts or nervous about it or we don't feel qualified. Whatever that is, but oftentimes we compare ourselves to someone else who we think is just like nailing it and go, I'm not there. They don't need me. And so we essentially disqualify ourselves ourselves from serving God. We we disqualify ourselves from ministry and ministry opportunities. And Paul is essentially saying, Don't sell yourself short. In that fact, he's not saying that. He's saying scratch that. Don't sell God's giftedness to you and the Spirit's choice of distribution of that giftedness short. Don't assume you have nothing to offer. God has not designed you like that. And remember, He's the source of the gifts and He's the source of the power behind the gifts. Our job, our role is simply to be faithful in their use. I think sometimes we fall into this comparison trap and when we decide that we, we don't fit, we don't have something that is useful, but it's a lie. Um, yesterday afternoon, and you can see by my sunburn on this side of my face, um, I went to uh, the Trinity football game to watch the boys play, or as I like to call them, my youth group, because pretty much most of the team is in, in my youth group, um, which is kind of fun. And, uh, they had a tough, tough game against a team from Mississippi. Ended up winning the game. Last snap was on four seconds to go on the clock. Scored a touchdown with the last play of the game, won the game, bench clears, everyone went crazy. The kid who caught the last touchdown, it was the second catch of the game. He'd either not been thrown to, had either not been open, or had dropped whatever had come his way before that. Now don't get me wrong, he played well, but he could have been forgiven easily for convincing himself that he had nothing to offer the team. I haven't done well this game. I haven't caught what I should have caught. I haven't gotten open when I should have gotten open. But he didn't quit. He didn't diminish his, his giftedness based upon the results that he was getting. He kept going. And the last play of the game, it all came good. And the team won. Now here's the cool thing about it, is that one person's contributions, that didn't win the game. The contribution of the whole team and the coaching staff, the grit, the determination, the Continuing to play through the mistakes, the, the fumbles, the interceptions, all of that stuff. They kept on fighting and never quit. That's the kind of mentality I think we need to have with regards to the spiritual gifts. Rather than allowing ourselves to convince ourselves or be convinced by someone else that we don't have much of anything to offer, therefore I'm just going to shut it down and slip into the shadows. That's what Satan wants us to do. One thing that struck me again watching the game is it's not necessarily that they've made mistakes. There's been some of that, but the other team has caused some of those mistakes. That's what the other team is out about trying to, they're trying to disrupt. They're trying to slow them down, stop them. They're trying to score against them. And we face an enemy that is doing the exact same thing with us. And if he can convince us before we even get off the starting line that you don't have anything to offer here, and well, we go, okay game's over that's it and and not only are you not using your giftedness but in the process you're not getting to see the beauty of watching god work through you and you're robbing the rest of us from the unique god that god gift that god has given you that is supposed to benefit us we all lose I think there's a certain amount where Paul, it sounds like he's frustrated with the Corinthians, but I'm not sure that he is. I think he is to an extent, but I think as well, he's a gentle father, fatherly leader. He wants them to grow and to improve. And so he's pointing them in the right direction. He's trying to nurture them. He's trying to fan the flames. You've got this. Go. Give it a shot. And I think it's something that we could do well with continuing to employ at fellowship to create the type of atmosphere where it's okay for people to utilize their gifts and to mess up in the process, to fall, to fail, to struggle and go, man, I'm not good at this. Try it again. Our job as pastors is to equip the church for works of service. That's where the gifts fall in. The gifts are the works of service. And I'll be honest with you, I think sometimes um, we have failed in our job that we're number one, not equipping properly or as well as we could. But I think also we've fallen into a trap sometimes where we see a role that needs to be fulfilled and we look around at who's got that giftedness and is already excelling at it. And let's plug that person in there. And I think sometimes what we need to be doing is finding someone who has that giftedness who doesn't realize that they may have that giftedness. And all they're lacking is experience. But you can't get experience until you have opportunity. And I think sometimes we have failed to provide the opportunity. And for that, I apologize. The second issue that Paul tackles is the I don't need them arrogant side of things. Addressing those within the Corinthian church who viewed their gifts or their use of them as superior to those around them. Saying, I got this. You guys go... You guys go sit down. I will handle all of this. Okay. Um, he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. Now, why Paul felt the need to go there, I'm not really sure. I think you get the idea, right? Thanks for that, Paul. Um, but there were two errors, apparently, the main issues that were preventing the church at Corinth from being fully functional members of their particular body. Yeah, I don't have anything to offer idea and the I'm so good, I don't need anybody else. Honestly, I don't see a huge amount of the I'm so good, I don't need anything else going on. Um, at least not within us as a church, which is great. Um, but I do see more of the I don't have anything to offer mentality or, or the I don't feel qualified or equipped. Some of you don't even have that excuse though. And I'll be honest with you. Some of you, and hopefully I don't, well, I'm mean, gonna, no, no, I'm not, hopefully I'm not gonna, I'm gonna step on some toes. Some of y'all are just hoarding. You, you know what skill set you have. You know what your gifts are, but you've decided you're just gonna kind of church, this is your church home, but you're just here to, to take. You're here to just get what you get out of it. You're not, you haven't crossed that, crossed that threshold of figuring out what, how do you contribute to the process? How do you help drive the bus forward? And that's about all I'm gonna say on that. That's Consider your toes stepped on and I'm stepping back off now, okay? And Paul says in verse 27, look what he says. Um, he ends the chapter in a fascinating manner. It's one of those weird passages where the chapter breaks almost don't seem to fit initially, but they do. So bear with me on this, okay? He follows through on this whole body analogy and these two areas that he tackles. And he reminds the Corinthians that they each have a part to play. They're all part of the one body. And then he asks them a series of rhetorical questions in verse 27 through 30. So here's what he says. He says, now you are the body of Christ and each of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, these are all gifts, okay? Then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kind of tongues and you can kind of add and so on and so forth there, right? Okay? Then he hits these rhetorical questions. He says, are all apostles? Obviously, no. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. No. Do all work miracles? No. Do you all have the gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Do all serve? Do all etc. 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 The answer is no to all of them. It's a rhetorical set of questions. Because we need all of the gifts represented. But then he makes a couple of intriguing statements when he gets to verse 31. So here in verse 31 he says this, and this is kind of like wrapping up this whole thing. He says, now eagerly desire the greater gifts. And he just leaves it hanging out there. My first question is like, which ones are the greater gifts? I, I can't tell. You have just listed a bunch and that's not even all of them, but what are the greater ones? If I'm reading it right, I think Paul is using a little bit of tongue in cheek here. Like, I think there are certainly some gifts that have more impact. They, they, they hit the larger, larger audience than, than others. There's no question about that. There's no question the Corinthians were dealing with issues where some of them were seen as more flashier or cooler than others. And that was honestly getting them in trouble. But if I'm reading it right, the greater gifts are the ones that God has given you. He talks about how the Spirit determines who gets what. So the greater gifts are the ones that you have. He goes on to talk about how he said about how the weaker the weaker gifts, the weaker parts of the body are indispensable. It's like the story with the touchdowns. The, the The player that didn't contribute as much as he thought he could was the one that pulled off the game. So from here, he then transitions to his main focus, the meat in the middle of the sandwich. Now he shifts into 1 Corinthians 13. And he says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. I think he's shifting focus from the gifts to the intended motivation and use of those gifts, and that is love. So you could reinterpret him anyways, verses 1 through 3 like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, is, wait, is that one of? The, is that the greater gift? But have not love, you're just noise. If I have the gift of prophecy, wait, is that the greater gift? That's the second one he mentions. Maybe that's it. If I can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, maybe that's it. If I have faith to move mountains, okay, now we're talking. We're moving mountains now. This is the big time stuff. That's got to be the greater gift. But do not have love, nothing, not a Zip. Zilch. What about giving? Generosity. Nope. Martyrdom. That's pretty big. Nope. You don't have love, you gain nothing. I think he's saying that the greater gift is love. Because it, t- it gives everything else meaning. It gives everything else context. The Corinthians had missed that vital point. And as a result, they were in absolute term- turmoil with the way that they utilized and used the gifts. I'm going to wrap up with this. We talked about the various language and communications. So, um, Some of you guys probably remember there's the five love languages. Um, I never really get into that sort of stuff. I probably couldn't even tell you what the five love languages were. Um, I'm not even sure if I know what mine is. Um I know what my wife says though, because she's made sure I'm aware of that. So I got that part down. But to some degree, it's like, what is our love language as a church? Essentially, how do we communicate love? The gifts, the spiritual gifts are God's love language to us. This is God giving us the ability to love People that He brings into our sphere of influence to love one another, to edify and build each other up. The spiritual gifts are our love language, or at least should be. Paul is telling us to eagerly desire and pursue love and the gifts will take care of themselves. Love provides the motivation for developing the gifts and the context with which to use them. Love solves all the problems that the Corinthian church appears to have had with their misuse of them. Is fellowship a place where we can feel safe to learn our gift without fear of messing up? Is this how, isn't this that how we grow? Do we love each other enough to come out of the shadows with our gift even when we're not sure we are comfortable with how to use it? But do we recognize that others around us need it? Um, so we're willing to stick our necks out a little bit. Do we extend the grace that's needed to allow for experimentation a little bit of trial and error? Are we determined to hone our gifts to better serve one another? And are we willing to put in the work that's required to utilize and to to develop our gifts? I say, I don't think Paul is necessarily frustrated with the church at Corinth. I think, yes, there's an element of that. But I think he sees that they're young and they're immature. They're They're a young church and they need to learn and they need to grow. Um, And it may be because I'm a youth pastor and have been for a long time. I work with teenagers. They're flighty at the best of times. Okay. And so, sorry guys. Don't get me wrong. I've got a great bunch of kids. Um, All right. There you go. But um, because I know they're teenagers, they're kids, it's easy to extend grace to them. When, when they, when they mess up, when they, you know, I've, I've had kids before, like when we're cleaning up after something and a kid vanishes off and comes back right at the end. Hey, Andy, what do you need? It's like, well, now you come and ask. It's like, I know what happened. You just decided you'd get out of the serving portion of this and do, it's, it's understandable, right? Um, when, when the worship team bumbles one of the songs, it, it happens. I think sometimes when we get to the adult stage of things, we have we we expect a little more perfection, for lack of a better word, and we, we we limit the amount of grace that we're willing to offer. And to some extent, that makes sense. The kids, to some degree, are in a factory where they're trying to learn how to walk with Christ and they're trying to figure it all out. They're trying to put piece all of that together. And so we give them those opportunities, maybe more so than we should or we do at the adult level. Um. But as a result, they grow. And some of them are growing like weeds. No, that sounds bad because weeds are bad. But you know know what I'm talking about. They're, They're growing spiritually because they're having opportunities to figure things out. They're having opportunities to fail. And so they're learning to succeed. They're learning what walking with God looks like. They're learning what serving others looks like and what using their gifts looks like. And in the process, we're able to come alongside and kind of give advice and nurture and nudging and point them in the right direction. Listen to this real quick. I'm going to just touch on these things just to wrap up. If you look at First Corinthians, it struck me as I was reading this um, yesterday, um, the, the different context that chapter 12 provides on chapter 13. Verses 4-7 through seven are essentially the description of what love is. Listen to it though now within the context of the gifts. Love is patient. I think Paul is being patient with the Corinthians, even though they're way off track. And he's encouraging them as they develop love to be patient with one another. Love is kind. It does not envy. This, this addresses so many of the issues that the Corinthians were having. They envied one another. Hey, you've got that gift. I want that gift. I'm nothing because I don't have that one. Right, And he's addressing these things. Love doesn't envy. Essentially, love celebrates the fact that someone else got a gift that you didn't get. It does not boast in the giftedness that you have. It's not proud because you get to teach rather than whatever, serve, fill the coffee or whatever it is. It does not dishonor those who have gifts different from you. It's not self-seeking. The Corinthians were using the gifts to puff themselves up. It was all about them. They'd missed the boat. They'd missed love in the context. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. One of the, uh, one of the aspects of this whole idea of providing opportunity to give experience, um, when, when I see where the students are at spiritually, like for instance, that example I gave about the student who comes after all the serving is done. And he goes, ooh, can I help? It's like you're trying to get credit for offering to help, but you've literally made yourself scarce for the last 20 minutes. For me, rather than be frustrated with them, I see it as a baseline. It's like, all right, that's where they are. That's where their heart is at, on the on the on the service point of view. This is where we're starting from. So, in a few weeks or a few months, when the teaching starts taking hold, and now they're coming up at the beginning of the time that needs to happen to clean everything up, offering to help progress. And I think this is what Paul is talking about. You rejoice with the truth. You rejoice when you see the progress of someone gaining closeness to Christ and coming closer to Him. It says love always, always trusts, it always hopes and it always perseveres. Love never fails. I'm going to wrap up here, but what I wanted us to do as we close... Um, I wanna, I wanted to play a music video. And we'll, we'll have this be our, like, last worship song as we're going out. Um, you guys probably all know this. This is for King and Country. Let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. Um, and I want you guys, as we, as we watch the video, and it's, nothing moves on the video except for the words. Um, so it's not anything fancy. But as, as the, as the video plays, I want you guys just to prayerfully worship. Um, and, ask the lord to help you identify what your gifts are give you ideas on how you can develop them and there may be some ministry opportunities that you could serve in if you're not already um and utilize those gifts for the edification and the benefit of fellowship bible church so let's end with that thanks bob I sing, but don't have love, I waste my breath with every song I bring, an empty voice, a high noise. If I speak with a silver tongue, convince a crowd, but don't have love, I leave a bitter taste with every word I say. So let my love be the proof, the proof of your love. Let my love look like you and what you're made of. How you lived, how you died, love is sacrifice. You need needy so, but don't have love. The new is poor, it seems all the poverty is found in me. So let my life be the proof, the proof of your love. Let my love look like you and what you made of. How you lived, how you died. Love is same with human eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all of his mysteries and making everything as plain as day, and if I have faith to say to a mountain jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give all I own to the poor, or even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gone nowhere. So... No matter what I say, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt without love.